Hello, and welcome to State of Crime. One state, two murders, lots of crime. With Kaylin and Elena. And this week, Kaylin brought a special guest. Maria. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't know if any of you have caught on that I am a former student of Elena's. And... Maria was a classmate and a friend of mine in high school, and we have reconnected through work since. And mm-hmm. she was also, you, were no. you, no? Very, I wasn't there for very long. Yes. So it, it was, I was in the class and then I wasn't in the class. So it wasn't something that lasted. I think I was there for probably three weeks and no. then I switched to a different class. Yeah. So it's because the teacher sucked. <laughs> All right. So to start off this week, we need to talk a little bit about Kaylin's missing Nebraska case. Yeah, so I don't know what happened. <laughs> I went to upload it, and I thought it was uploading, or like it had uploaded onto our platform that then distri- dis- dis- distributes. Thank you. <laughs> Words. <laughs> that distributes it to the rest of our platforms. And I then got a text later on in the evening, and we. I got a text later on in the evening and they were like, hey, where's today's episode? And so I like got on to look for it. It didn't upload. And I have two files of it on my computer. I have an original file and then the edited file. They were both just gone. Off your computer, they just disappeared. Not in like the recycling bin or nothing. They're just gone. So my theory is one of the people that we've profiled somewhere in the past We've angered their ghosts. <laughs> They've infiltrated <laughs> Kaylin's computer, and we we're now cursed yeah. officially. I mean, that's the it, thought. So, and it kind of sucks because I liked that case. That was the John Jubert case. If any of you have any spare time, go look him up. It's yeah. kind of weird. <laughs> it was a good one. So <laughs> it's not here. So I'm here to <laughs> search it. So yeah, and, and send us some water, some salt and holy water too. <laughs> Seriously, so, maybe we should sage the computer. Yeah, so, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, just you know, a little patch sitting right here. <laughs> just light it. Just hang out. Put some crystals, something. So, in honor of the fact that we are now officially a cursed podcast, <laughs> um, my case for this week involves not only murder. But ghosts, and yeah. I've done I've done murder with hauntings before. Yeah. My South Carolina case, supposedly mm-hmm. she haunts. Was that Lavinia? Lavinia. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But this time we got two ghosts. That's so it's fun. even better. Yeah. So I'm also wondering, you know, Mercury Mercury's in retrograde. So I don't know what any of that means. <sighs> Neither do I really. <laughs> it's fun. I mean, you just kind of say it to, to sound a little That's bit right. better, I guess. I know it's supposed to be bad for communication. That's all I know. So. Okay. But it makes me sound cool. Anyways, so for Vermont, I was incredibly disappointed that there are no maple syrup-related murders. I wanted somebody poisoning maple syrup or something, but no. That's not that so, a good idea. Yeah. But I did end up with two ghosts, so... This made me happy. You and some, you lose some. Yes. <laughs> so, and we also follow the old trope. There used to be a lot of jokes about traveling salesmen and farmers' daughters. And we have not one, but two farmers' daughters in this episode. And we actually have two women who have quite a lot in common. And that's what's going to lead to trouble. 
So, we are going to start with a woman named Mildred Brewster. She was born Lena Marilla Brewster in rural Huntington, Vermont, which isn't all that far, I guess, from Montpelier because, frankly, nothing's very far from anything in Vermont because it's a teeny tiny state. <laughs> so her mother died very young. Her dad was very, very wealthy. He managed to amass a fortune of $30,000, which doesn't sound like much, but in today's dollars, that's almost a million. What year was this? Well, let's see. She would have been born in 1877. Oh, okay. So. It's a while back. Yes. So, Daddy's rich, like I said. And it sounds like, you know, since Daddy had money, Mama died young, Mildred was just a little bit spoiled because the sources that I read talked about how, you know, her father was always trying to please her. He sends her off to Burlington, which is quite a bit larger than Huntington, where she's from. And so she can go to high school there, and he's thinking it's a bigger town. She'll have more opportunities to socialize. Maybe it'll mm -hmm. make her happy. And it doesn't. She never graduates from high school, and she ends up waiting tables in uh, Burlington. And so after a while, she goes back to Huntington, where she teaches school, which I found very interesting <laughs> that she could have cut high school but she can go back to Huntington and teach. And I don't want to hear any, you know, bad things about education. But anyway, um, teaching obviously does not make her happy. And in around 1896, the dates were a little off. <laughs> she was about 19, I'm assuming, at the time. She goes to Montpelier, which is the capital of Vermont and quite a bit bigger. And again, her dad thinks it's a big city. She'll have a lot of opportunities. You know, maybe this will make her happy. So she works a number of odd jobs. Among them, she was a seamstress for a company called Ledin and Campbell, but she ends up losing that job just a few weeks before the murder. And she was also boarding, living in a boarding house at a home on Bar Street. And it was while she had been boarding there that she meets a guy, 22-year-old Jack Wheeler. And by all accounts, Jack was really hot and really good looking. Um, he worked as a stone cutter. There was just one little problem. He was married. No. Oh, okay. But he had a fiancé. It's close enough. So, basically married. Yes. A young woman, 17 years old, named Anna Wheeler. And we'll get to her in just a minute. Now, she has the same last name. There was a wonderful woman who wrote a great article about this case who um, was working in the Masters of Fine Arts program at the University in Vermont that we're going to talk about a little bit more as well. And she said, I know they're not related because I looked on Ancestry.com. So, <laughs> so, so if they had gotten married, Anna would have not had to change her name. She had a good job there. So anyway. Um, <laughs> That's pretty lucky. Yes. <laughs> so here's where things get just a little bit confusing. So Jack at first claims that he never had any interest in Mildred. That he always loved on Anna, he was always faithful to her, and that nothing had ever happened. However, later it comes out 
that he, the, the landlady at the boarding house, a woman named, I love this name, hmm. Mrs. Good Enough. Good Enough? Good Enough. Um, <laughs> <laughs> testified that Jack would often visit Mildred at the boarding house. And that when she would go in to change the linens, she would find evidence that Mildred and Jack were sharing a bed. So, I'll leave that to you. How do you... I, I mean... We don't need to go into a lot of detail, but you know. Yeah. You know. So, anyway. So, Miss, and other people also testified that it was pretty obvious that Jack and Mildred were sharing a room. Fairly frequently. And in fact, Jack eventually ends up living at the same boarding house. So, coincidence? Sketchy. Yeah, I think not. And even Jack, I guess, later on recants his story that, you know, he had never had anything to do with her romantically. So, Jack had also confided in another friend that he had promised Mildred something that he later regretted. And he even went so far as in, to imply to this friend that Mildred had had an abortion. Mm. So, yes. Ooh. Remember, this is 1896, 1897. Such things exist, you yeah. know, but again. So, and then kind of the, I don't know, you know, the bow on the package are later on letters are found from Jack to Mildred which also make it pretty obvious that he had feelings for her beyond friendship. And in one of the letters, there's even, he's even expressing his jealousy that he had seen her talking to another man. Oh. Yes. But he's, but he can be engaged and it's fine. I, <laughs> you know how these love triangles yeah, go. Yeah. I think it's, yeah, where he <laughs> he likes the excitement probably with Mildred, whereas he's comfortable with Anna, right. scumbag. Yes. But exactly a dog nonetheless. Right. Like, and Mildred is twenty, Anna's seventeen. Do you know what I'm? I wonder yeah. if there's not a little bit of obviously Mildred was willing to go a little further, like than a maturity Anna was. barrier, maybe. maybe. Possibly. Maybe less maturity, more sexual. Right. There you the, go. Yeah, right. if they're obviously sharing a room together at the boarding house. Yes. So we're going to flip now a little bit to Anna, who was born in Montpelier, but her father was also a wealthy farmer. So it was on, it said in one of the sources that it was East Montpelier. So I'm assuming back then it was, you know, still pretty agrarian sort of a thing. Um, she was born Carrie Anna Wheeler, but went by her middle name. One source that I was reading insisted on calling her Annie, which I don't understand that because I couldn't find anything else that ever referred to her that way. And her very modest, very small little tombstone does say Anna. So we're going with Anna. So like I said, she was also born to a wealthy farmer family, although both of her parents survive. She doesn't have any of uh, the seeming tragedy that Mildred seems to have in her background. And her life in general seems to be quite a bit more stable. Although, in 1897, she was working in Montpelier and living with some cousins of hers. These people also have great names. The Bugbees. 
<laughs> what is with the names back in those times? We've got like, this is good enough. We got the bugbees. I wonder if these are just things that they were saying like on a normal day to day basis and it just kind of stuck with them. I don't know, but I love the names. So, so anyway, she's working there as as a domestic, which basically means she's a maid. And like we said, she is engaged to Jack Wheeler. So we have these two women. Right, both of whom have very strong ties to Jack. We can see where this is going. So on the morning of May 29th, 1897, it was a rainy Saturday. Anna was waiting to leave. She and Jack had plans to take the train and go to a nearby town for a celebration. So while she's, she's waiting at home and um, her cousin, Clarence Bugby, sees a woman standing on his porch for about 10 minutes. And finally, she knocks on the door. So they open the door and it is Mildred. Mildred enters their home and for the next 45 minutes, Anna and Mildred are engaged in a pretty in-depth conversation. And Mr. Bugby later reports that at some point he did hear Mildred say, Jack Wheeler can't be engaged to us both. We will have to let him decide. So shortly thereafter, they both leave together. Now, apparently to me, I'm sure there had to have been some sort of emotions going on here and you know, some difficulties or whatever. Yeah, this wasn't a calm conversation. Mm -mm. But when they leave the house, they're sharing one umbrella. So there can't, do you know what I'm saying? It doesn't seem like there was an awful lot of animosity, at least at that point. Or if there was, somebody was hiding it real well. Or somebody was manipulating the other. Mm -hmm. Possibly those things. We'll see. And as the, so they're walking down the street, headed towards... Jack Wheeler's house. Um, there's lots of people, even though it's a rainy Saturday morning, lots of people are still out on their porches. You know, lots of people see them. It's, you know, pretty much out in the open. It's not like they're going down dark alleyways or anything. And they pass the Montpelier Seminary, which is now known as College Hall. And it's part of the Vermont College of Fine Arts. And we'll come back to that in a minute. And this is also very close to where Jack Wheeler is staying. Now, I don't, I'm assuming he was no longer in the boarding house where Mildred was, but again, I'm not 100% sure on that. So anyway, as they get close to his house, they can both see it. Mildred takes out a 32 caliber revolver, shoots Anna in the head behind her ear, and then shoots herself in basically the same place. Wait, so, it, a wait, it was a murder-suicide? No. Oh. So, several people see this happen. They all rush to the street where both women are lying in the street unconscious. And they are taken to Jack's home, since his is the closest. As soon as the police and a doctor arrive, you know, to, to do whatever, first aid care, whatever, they are both moved to Heaton Hospital, where Anna dies at 1.30 p.m. Mildred survives, although she is very, very gravely wounded. So it was apparently her intention 
to commit murder and suicide, although she's late, she later claims her intention was only to commit suicide, that the murder was kind of a spur-of-the-moment decision. Liar. I, yeah, that's where I feel like I kind of come back to the manipulation part where I feel maybe Mildred had coerced Anna to go with her to talk to Jack. I wonder, too. You know, there's... Which would put their placement so close. Yeah, it does seem very odd to me. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like you say that, you know, she waits till they're right out front of his house to do this. It does seem very much like a vengeful sort of, Mm -hmm. you know, you don't get either one of us. Yeah, right, right. Sort of a thing. So in any case, um, like we said, Anna dies at 1.30 p.m. And she is our first ghost. So her ghost is still said to haunt College Hall at the Vermont College of Fine Arts. And like I said, that was when uh, my major sources was, excuse me, a post that was written by a woman who actually ended up being kind of, I think she was a visiting professor in that program. And she talked a lot about how there are all these strange going ons that are attributed to Anna and so on. And just, just a few days after this, Anna's funeral is held and there are just crowds of people who attend because obviously this is immediately huge news not only throughout Montpelier but Vermont and even Mm -hmm. outside of the state as well so Mildred is also very very gravely wounded she regains consciousness much later that same day um, later May 29th and one of the first things that she asks is did Anna die She's told that, in fact, Anna did die, and she asks her father to get her a pistol so that she can finish the job, and also asks him to go to her room and get a bunch of letters. She was worried about these letters being stolen, and it's actually going to turn out to be to her benefit that these letters, in fact, were not... Um, retrieved by her father that apparently it looks like the police got there first and had taken them. I think her asking if Anna was dead kind of proves the fact that she meant it was for sure premeditated Mm -hmm. because she wakes up and she wants to make sure that like she did what she needed to do and that Anna died. Or she realizes that she failed to kill herself do you know what I mean? And is wondering, did I also... Did I go through with yeah. it Anna? Did it work? Or maybe maybe she's hopeful. I don't know. You know. Do you know what I mean? She could have been having regret. Possibly. I guess you would just have to be there to hear the tone. Yeah. To yeah. like feel the vibe in the room from her. Did, yeah, this, this was one of my cases that I have to tell you. Like normally I'm very good about hating my murderer most of the time. Um, yeah, this is strange. You kind of like... Not really taking her side or, like, backing her up or anything, but you definitely have more faith in her in this case than you normally do in our suspects, our suspects and our perpetrators in our normal cases. Yeah, I'm just not sure what to think. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And, And I'll tell you why in just a little bit. So, these letters, like I said, end up helping her because it's in these letters that it is, in fact, proven that Jack Wheeler did, in fact... Do you know what I'm saying? He was, in fact, making her think that their relationship was something more. 
this information that comes out during his trial, or sorry, during her trial, that she had very likely been pregnant and had an abortion. Do you know what I mean? It it just make, it makes me feel kind of sad for Mildred, I guess. I mean, it's 1897. Morals are very different then. The, you know, these are both women from fairly wealthy, respectable families. So the avenues of what a woman is allowed to do are so narrow. I just, again. Moral of the story, don't try to have a relationship with somebody who's getting married. Well, there you go. Yeah. But the, how much did Jack lie to her, too? I mean, yeah, we don't know exactly what he was saying to her. To like, he could have been telling her, "Well, I'm going to leave Anna." Maybe that's where he had that comment came up to a friend. I promised her something, and she's holding me yeah. to it. And that same friend, which is also the same one that Jack supposedly hinted that there had been an abortion. Mm -hmm. Apparently, he also said to this friend. This friend testified all of this during mm -hmm. the trial under oath that Jack had even said. Were it not for Anna, he would have been equally happy to marry Mildred. So I do wonder, do you know what I'm saying? What what was he telling Mildred? How much did Mildred really know about his relationship with Anna? Mm -hmm. Scumbag. Yeah. That's all I got. So like I said, I'm, I'm not sure. So the other thing that I think also made me have just a little bit more maybe doubt about just how nefarious Mildred was in her plan is one of the letters that was confiscated from her room read, quote, don't blame lovesick girls for they were made thus loving. A handsome girl is something, one real good, willing, self-sacrificing more, but one who loves almost to distraction most. Take those lukewarm, indifferent, loveless beauties, you who would become a marital martyr. She is the premium wife whose fervored, glowing, whole soul, whole soul, devoted love knows no limit, who is spellbound, magnetized, entranced, beside herself when beside her lover, whose love, torrent-like, sweeps all before it, making all possible allowances for imperfections in the loved one and magnifying to the highest degree his desirable and loving traits of character. Mildred Brewster. So she wrote the letter? Yes, that is her letter. And many at the time took it to be a suicide note. Hmm. Whereas she probably knew maybe he was going to stay with Anna? That seems to be the implication. Yeah. You know, that he had, in fact, jilted Mildred and mm -hmm. made it clear that, no, we really aren't getting together. I'm going to stay with Anna. And that that's what prompted her actions. I mean, yeah. You don't want her. You can't have the other one. Mm-hmm. So I can't have you. No one can. Right. right. So in any case, I mean, like I said, I never, I don't. I don't ever want to say that what I think Mil what Mildred did was not right in any way, shape, or form. But I'm not sure that she wasn't manipulated, lied to, maybe. I feel possibly. like this very much goes into the conversation you and Maria and I were having earlier. Um, so she just watched the documentary. We're gonna sidetrack for a second on um, "Mommy Dead and Dearest." Oh yes, Gypsy and DV Blanchard. I love yes. that case. Well, they and they also just started a Hulu series, which is. Mm -hmm. It's 
not a documentary or anything like that. It does have actors and it is dramatized and it even like says that like while based on true events, there are things that have been dramatized and fictionalized. Mm-hmm. So I started the Hulu series. She watched the documentary and we were talking it about was it chilling. earlier. It yeah. really was. The documentary. I mean, honestly, the story in and of itself is crazy enough. You don't need to add much drama. No, no. I mean, and that watching it was mind blowing and then hearing like Gypsy's confession confession but not just confession but like her story mm-hmm. about how she really didn't know and i mean when you live day to day like that and as you start as a child and that's how Dee Dee did it was she was little she yeah. was five when she first started the muscular dystrophy thing and that's when she started the wheelchair well and so just for our listeners <clears throat> in case they're not totally familiar um her mother had munchausen's by proxy yes. mm-hmm. which is where it's much, much more prevalent in women than men. And that is where the the person who has Munchausen's by proxy ha- gets some sort of satisfaction or benefit from making a loved one, most often their own child, mm-hmm. sick. Because and, it lets them take care of them and feel wanted and feel needed that, right. that their child needs them. So they make them sick. And, to then take care of them. And it also gets them all of the attention mm-hmm. and the, the money. oh, aren't you a wonderful person? Yes, Dee Dee's case where she, I mean, they did videos where they posted to the public, you know, this is what we're doing. You've, you know, helped us go to Disneyland for her. You helped us go on this cruise for her. And all Habitat while, for Humanity built a house built a for house her. for her. I mean, you know, everything and all this money that she was racketeering basically and taking in and then... I mean, even looking at the medication closet that they had. Was insane. I mean, that's just crazy to me that as a mother, I can't imagine even wanting to do something like that to my kids for the benefit of myself. Yeah. Like to feel good that people are seeing me as this like God, basically, Mm -hmm. that I'm taking care of my child who's terminally ill, but we've beat all the odds, you know, like we're doing it. And she's got all of these different crazy things that are wrong. Bizarre things, you know, and even like Gypsy was saying, it was just... She didn't understand, like, because the medication, well. right, because the medi- some medications were onsetting symptoms for other diseases mm-hmm. where, and Dee Dee fed off of it and just mm-hmm. continued to feed. Yeah. And I, I believe that Munchausen's is also, like, there's usually narcissistic personality yes. mm-hmm. disorder Manipulative. associated with that. And her parents do go into that, and that started when Dee Dee was a child with her own mother. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's something that nobody broke that cycle for her. So yeah. it just kind of... Dwelved and it, it's just sad all around. It's it's terrible. But I think it it very much goes into the conversation you and I were having earlier about it about the manipulation and the fact that you mm-hmm. it's hard to find someone who was a victim. Which I mean, Mildred wasn't exactly a victim because she kind of put herself in this own situation. Depending on what Jack said to her, mm-hmm. she knew right. he was engaged. What no matter what he was saying to her, so right. she she is less of a victim. But, but it again, here here's my take on it, and you know, like I said, there's there's a novel that's been written that I guess is fairly fact based about the case. So maybe there's some more information about that. But when did she find out that Jack Wheeler was engaged? Do you know what I mean? Right. What did he tell her about this engagement? Um, like I said, there's so many things out there that I. I have questions about, Yeah, I guess, that... And again, you know, murder is never a solution. I don't ever want to say that I feel like that was all right. And we're going to get into a little bit more, too, about why that may have been the path she took. Um, 
So anyway, Mildred is indicted for premeditated murder. She is still recovering. So she shot herself in the head May 29th, 1897. That bullet is in her head until January of 1898. They had to wait. And, you know, granted, it's, you know, a long time ago. Medical procedures right. aren't what they are today. But still, they had to wait quite a long time for her to be strong enough for them to do surgery to get it out. So, and when she was initially indicted for murder, and they did indict her for premeditated murder, Good. she was not able to attend any of the hearings because she was too ill. And then there was something about them having a stenographer there that was illegal. So there were some difficulties around the case. So What's, the case is moved, a stenographer is somebody who takes notes. Oh. You know, the court stenographer. Oh, oh okay. okay. <laughs> she, yeah. The person <laughs> who we're all just kind of like moving around. <laughs> like keyboard. <laughs> and by the way, they make bank. Do they? They court do make stenographers. a lot of money. Yeah. But you have to be able to like type super fast. Right. And it's I, very, I, very I would stressful. not be able to keep a straight face. No, it'd be... And it, yeah, it's a very stressful job to do it. Yeah. I've, I've read some of the... There's a book that they made of like just this court stuff, and I had read a bunch of them, and I don't know how these how these people kept from laughing, no. or jumping up and screaming at people, or yeah, yeah. In any case, there's all these technicalities with the initial indictment, so her case is moved to the state supreme court, and then her murder trial ends up beginning the fourth of April, eighteen ninety eight. So it's not an ungodly weight, you know, in terms of these things. Mildred is still convalescing. She is able to be in the courtroom, but they seat her in what was described by murderbygaslight.com, which I love the title of that place, <laughs> um, but as sitting in a plush rocking chair. So there were still accommodations being made because of her health. Ugh. The state says, of course, she planned this. She had purchased the revolver several days before and was seen practicing with it the morning of the murder. And that one piece of evidence is pretty damning to me. So that's where I do start to swing a little bit more to... Because you don't need to practice to shoot yourself. I'm sorry, that may have sounded really... But I get what you're saying. I, I do, because in that moment, it, it's more of like a heat of passion kind of thing where it's you're not really thinking about it you just kind of do it where I think if she was spotted practicing with a handgun then she had intentions to use it and needed to know how to use it properly yeah yeah so the defense puts on what at the time was a very rare not very often heard of defense it's the one you hate the most Kaylin she's crazy Pisses me off. I hate it so much. <laughs> I hate it so much. So many of my cases lately have been women in historical cases who are declared insane and they end up going to state mental hospitals instead, instead of prison. Of but isn't that just like that? I mean, what women are portrayed as even today is just we're just crazy. Like yeah. we're just psychos. Yeah. And well, we talked about it. I think it was we talked about last that. week's episode. Mm -hmm. I think we talked about how... They probably did it on purpose to try to keep these women because they are women are kind of put more on like a pedestal type thing where they're the more nurturing and this, this and that. Right. And so 
my thought was that maybe they do it on purpose to kind of keep them out of jail. And it's like, oh, they're just crazy. Let's put them in a mental hospital. But on the other side, we also talked about the fact that the mental hospitals back then weren't really very good. No. So. Like, I'm like thinking, um, are you sure? Like, are you positive? Because, I mean, lobotomies were pretty common. So it's just what were they really doing to these women? Or is it a reputation thing for women? Is they would, the judges and the jury and whatever would rather let them be known as crazy than a criminal. Yes. Well, and you have to understand, right? The word hysteria, have you ever noticed, closely related to hysterectomy because it's all centered around the uterus. And literally in Renaissance times, there was a belief that what women were crazy because their uteruses would detach and go floating around their bodies. And the term hysteria for a long time was not used for men. It was only used for, for women. For women, yeah. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot to this about that this correlation with insanity and women, women be cray-cray, you know, goes back very far in history. And like you said, it is still... A popular narrative today. Right? And it mm -hmm. still pisses me off. Oh, me too. <laughs> it makes me right. so mad. Well, it's like... Because every man, every man you've ever met, right? Somebody will say you're crazy. Yep. Every single man you've met has at least one crazy ex and usually more in his past. And they're usually not as crazy as the men make them out to be. No. You could meet up with that woman yeah. and not know who she was and be like, oh, this person's cool. And then they'd be like, oh, that's my crazy ex. And I'm like, well, she doesn't seem too crazy to me. Like, what did you do? Yeah, like, what did you do to make her crazy? But no, it just, it makes me so mad that they just get, I don't know, let off. Right. Because I don't care if you're a man or a woman, you kill someone, you go to jail. Right. Yeah. I do. Now, if there are, like, actual illnesses that are happening, that's more understandable. Right. Than just, like, well, she... I don't know. What did they try to diagnose her with? So, you know, there wasn't an official diagnosis that I found. But of course not. <laughs> calm down, young lady. <laughs> so bad. <laughs> so her very wealthy father had been able to buy very oh. good lawyers for her. That's right. And they're the ones who went for this defense. However, I will say there was a lot of evidence presented at her trial that maybe there really was something wrong with Mildred. And if you think back to... She lost her mother at a very young age. She has this long history of being unable to settle down into any sort of a job. She loses jobs. She's unable to finish high school. There's a lot of stuff in her biography that does, in fact, speak to some form of a mental illness. It could also be the well-strung narrative of the spoiled rich girl, too. I'm not saying that. not being held accountable. I mean, that can all... Yeah. So what manifest. it is, we'll see. Um, at any case, they do, the defense brings forth talk of Mildred's moodiness, that she had often talked about suicide. They bring forth that there are many members of the family that were mentally ill and suicidal. So, you know, there is a strong biological component to some of these things. I know you're sitting there looking at me, but... <laughs> the thing that really seems to sway the jury, which, by the way, was an all-male jury. It's 1898, right? Was a man named Dr. F.W. Page who worked at the Waterbury Insane Asylum. He presented a 4,000-word document. So he had done some in-depth 
research and diagnosis with Mildred. How much did Daddy pay him for that? I don't know, but he read every one of those 4,000 words in court. First of all, way too much time. <laughs> and second, I want to know how much Daddy paid him. The curiosity does stand. I mean, did her dad coerce this man with some money, stating that, hey, I don't see her, her winning this because it is an all-male jury, and she is a woman. Or is there is some damning evidence against her. Or is he a man who keeps his Hippocratic oath and there really is something wrong with Mildred? I think Daddy's just pointing it out. (laughs) I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's like my mood today, but like I'm not having it. You're just sassy. Daddy paid him off. (laughs) And he just overdid it with 4,000 words. (laughs) It's too much. (laughs) Too much. (laughs) At any rate. This, along with, you know, the fairly damning testimony against Jack that he had in fact lied to Mildred, played Mildred, whatever it is you want to believe, convinces the 12 male jury jurors, excuse me, that Mildred is in fact insane. So she is acquitted by reason of insanity on the 5th of May, 1898. So a month and a day after her trial begins, she is sent to the Waterbury State Hospital for 10 years and she remains there. And after 10 years, there was a childhood friend of hers who was married, had settled in and felt like, you know, maybe we could help Mildred. So in 1908, the spring of 1908, they get her out of the Waterbury State Hospital and they say, we will be her guardians. We will take care of her and watch her. Things must have been bad because this only lasts a few weeks and they ship her right back to the state hospital. So... If she wasn't crazy when she went in, by now there were some difficulties. Granted, I think that being at least somewhat sane person going into an insane asylum, you're going to come out crazy. Well, and she was there for 10 years. Yeah, which should have been longer. If she wasn't going to get jail time, she should have gotten longer enough. Well, it's apparent she went back. (laughs) Well, good. So she couldn't handle life outside. She does, in fact, go back for eight years. And... Like I said, I would like to know a lot more about those eight years because... What about the 18 years? I want to know what happened in the 10 years before she got out. True, but the reason I say those eight years is because there was a nurse who cared for her at the state hospital who, I guess, retires or whatever, but she leaves and moves to Bellingham, Washington, right outside of Seattle, and she offers to let Mildred come live with her. So again, she files whatever paperwork she needed to do. She petitions for Mildred's release. A sheriff escorts Mildred from the Waterbury State Hospital to Washington. And she does, in fact, live the rest of her life with this nurse. And she dies at the age of 65, never married, but seemingly settles down and has, you know, I don't know what kind of life with this nurse. I'm going to say it was probably better than any she had in the hospital. And there are stories that she haunts the Montpelier courthouse to this day. (laughs) We're all just kind of like, well, that one seems a little weird to me. I mean, she she passed away in Seattle, Mm -hmm. but her ghost is said to haunt in Montpelier. In Montpelier. 
in the courthouse. Well, maybe it's still that thing she can't have Anna running around at the college. And it could so be maybe like... that's her unfinished. I mean, it could be because I. I mean, I firmly believe in ghosts and spirits. Yeah, so so I, I mean, unfinished business. I think that that's the reason why they stick around, and I think that because Anna is known to still roam the college hall. What is her unfinished business? Well, we know what. Mildred's is, is that she obviously didn't finish what she had set out to do that included Anna. So that's got to be hers. But at the same time, Jack was still alive and Anna stuck around. And there wasn't a lot of information around Jack. The woman who worked with in the master's, uh, you know, the MFA program uh, there at the, the uh, college there said that Jack had moved down to Vermont from Canada with some other, I think his mother and a couple of sisters. And I think she's, apparently he left the area after the trial, which you can understand that was a lot probably to deal with, but she didn't know what happened to him after. And that she, that was one thing she said is she wanted to do more research and see if she could find out where he ended up. So maybe he's haunting someplace. Who knows? Well, I'm curious about why, I mean, Obviously, it was a lot. His fiance was shot by his mistress mm -hmm. of all people. Um, so I'm curious: is did that all arise in the town? Then, I mean, did the truth come out? Where people? I mean, back in those times, it was obviously not okay. You well, know? like I said, the testimony was given at the trial that yes, he in fact, like I said, from mm -hmm. Mrs. Goodenough and his friend, both and other people as well, right. all testified that there was ample evidence that he and Mildred did in fact mm -hmm. have a physical relationship. Right. The one friend said that, you know, there was an insinuation of an abortion. So he, Jack did not come out of this as, oh, poor Jack who lost his sweet 17-year-old fiance. He came out, and I believe he even ended up recanting and admitted that, yes, he and Mildred had had a relationship. So, you know, his reputation is gone. It's, right. I mean, right. the town now is going to look at him like mm -hmm. bad black sheep. Scumbag. Yeah. Right. He's a stonemason, so it's easy enough for him to find work. Yeah. Right. I know, mean, he anywhere. can move to a new town mm -hmm. and nobody's going to know start who over. he is. Yeah, especially in the times it's easy for them mm -hmm. to just disappear right. and start a new life. Right. And nobody would even think anything about it, yeah. especially not somebody like that in the case that it was. That makes me... I don't know if I'm in a mood today or what, but You're that would make me mad. <laughs> You're in a mood, girlfriend. I must be. <laughs> so, so that was my sad, tragic case of Anna and Mildred. Like, and poor Jack. Anna, but everybody else can fuck themselves. <laughs> <laughs> Jack Jones started it by sleeping with Mildred. Mildred then went psycho and, like, killed people, and it's just... Okay, well, we <laughs> will leave with that. That curse might be having more effects than we realize. <laughs> I think you need some sage. <laughs> and on Thursday, our extra special guest is actually going to do our second Vermont case. Yeah, do you I want to give us a little preview? Or? Oh, so it kind of goes into that yeah. claiming insanity sort of thing. Um, but at the same time, it, it goes into obviously knowing what the person is doing. They're well aware what they had done yeah and the pleading insanity i feel in my opinion on my case kind of falls into it's it's a little bs i think that it's kind of a joke so we can blame mildred for that too since we can yes her case I mean, was one of the pioneering cases for kind this. of yeah it lines up so. perfect so i couldn't have picked Sounds a better good. one all right well um 
send Kaylin messages of encouragement <laughs> on our Facebook discussion page. Attention me. <laughs> our Twitter. We do have our state of crime podcast at gmail.com. Yes. So thank you very much for listening. We will see you on Thursday.